May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I love that verse. It's beautiful, isn't it? May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Now, <clears throat> that's what some people regard of and use as, use as a great benedictory prayer, the kind of prayer that you pray at the end of a church meeting to send uh, us out on our way. And that benedictory nature of that prayer that Paul prays there leaves some commentators to, to suggest that what Paul is doing is signing off his letter, that this really is the, uh, the, the, uh, at a substantial level, the end of his letter. Um, and that just leaves him from verse 14 onwards of chapter 15 with some more personal remarks, a kind of um, perfunctory postscript. That's what some commentators suggest, and, and um, I want to um, suggest that they're wrong. Um, no, I don't suggest they're wrong, they're just wrong. Um, it, it's, it's quite clear that this passage here uh, in general and that verse there in particular is full of theological truth and, and gospel insight. James Dunn in his commentary on Romans uh, describes it and says that Paul's language is rich and immoderate. Uh, and that's a great phrase in it. It's rich and immoderate. Look what he says. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing or, or, or faith so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Now this, this prayer uh, is embodied in deeply embedded in what's gone before and it does prepare for what comes after. And what comes after this prayer is hugely significant in terms of the letter of Paul to the Romans. And this is Paul here in verse 13 praying the truth that he's been expounding in the surrounding verses into the hearts of the believers in Rome. So it's a very, it's a very functional prayer. It's not just a, a bit of rich and immoderate language for the sake of rich and immoderate language. It's not simply just a bit of a flowery rhetoric. Uh, it is a prayer that is functional. It's praying in truth into the hearts of the believers. And it's got a number of elements to it, hasn't it? It's got the element of hope. And it's got the element of joy. And it's got the element of peace and faith and power and hope. And, and the significance, all of them are significant, but the most significant element of those is surely the one that bookends the others. So... so Bookending joy, peace, faith, and power, you have hope and hope. Now, biblical hope, what is it? When Paul speaks about hope, what is it? I have a hope that I'm going to get home tomorrow, that I'm going to jump on a couple of planes that are going to be flying for about 26 hours uh, at about 37,000 feet. Uh, and uh, despite all of those apparent obstacles and all of those 12,000 miles by midday, my, no, uh, mid-morning, my time in England on Thursday, I'm going to be uh, walking through my front door. I really hope that. But I have no confidence that I will do that. I can say I'm a happy Calvinist, but God's never promised me that he's going to get me home. Now, is that the kind of hope that Paul is talking about here? Of course it isn't. 
Biblical hope is a firm confidence in the ability and willingness of God to keep his promises. That's what biblical hope is. It's hoping in the ability and the, 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 the will of God to keep all the promises that he's made. And what are those promises? Well, perhaps the most succinct encapsulation of the multifaceted uh, promises of God are the promises that he made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. You'll be familiar with that, I'm sure. But it's a pro- those promises were ones that culminated in, uh, in, in all the nations of the earth being blessed through Abraham and his offspring. So the hope for the Gentiles... For, for those who are not Abraham's descendants, is that they might be numbered among God's people. So that they might be included in the elect. That they might become heirs of the promises of God. That is, that, that is the hope. That is the hope that is based upon God's promise to his servant Abraham. So that he will, bless, that he will see all the nations of the earth blessed through him. That the Gentiles will be included. That God will keep his promise to Abraham so that the Gentiles, as Paul tells us in verse 9, may glorify God for his mercy. So so look at all those Old Testament citations in verses 9 to 12. And don't you love the way that Paul quotes the Old Testament and keeps coming across this, this term that we've translated Gentiles. Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing of your name. Again it said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. And in him will the Gentiles hope. And may the God of hope, Fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. It's preoccupied with hope, isn't it? And hope is the confidence in the ability and willingness of God to keep his promises. Those promises are encapsulated all through the Old Testament that God will have a people among among all the nations of the earth. That he will have people, men and women, from every nation and tribe and, 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 and tongue who will be singing the praises of Christ as Savior. That's what hope is. To know that God will keep that great promise. And I love that understanding of hope. I really do. Because most explanations of hope that I've found, that I've heard, are are tiny. They're they're, they're impoverished. They're they're undernourished. And they're puny. And hope is really nothing more than me getting into heaven where I get to sit in, in some interminable church service. Now, don't get me wrong, I like church services, I like gatherings, I do, really. But the thought of one going on for eternity, that doesn't ring my bell. Maybe I'm odd, but maybe I'm just plain ungodly, but that's about as attractive to me as sitting on a surfboard waiting for a great white shark to swim by. It's just not particularly an exciting prospect, is it, for me? But this hope... This hope isn't about some disembodied existence in some ethereal place, in some, in, in, in some kind of a weird worship event that is interminable. No, this hope is huge. This hope is God-centered. It's impressive. And I find this hope absolutely intoxicating. 
Because it's about the promises of God. The promises of God that extend over time and space and that stretch out into infinity and into eternity. It's a hope of promises that include all the nations under heaven, all the peoples on earth. It's a hope that is expansive and it's a hope that is encompassing. This is a hope that is to be believed in. A hope to have faith in with all joy and peace. This is a hope to abound in by the power of the Holy Spirit. But why? Well, let's have a look at the verses that follow. Verse 14 onward. Now, I wouldn't identify myself as a Trekkie. Um, But I said the subtitle of this talk, uh, Reaching the Unreached to Boldly Go, Um, But James T. Kirk, I have to confess, when I was a young boy, and yes, he was around when I was a young boy, nailed it for me. He really did. You know that that, that opening statement that he makes? Well, apparently, so so I've learned as I kind of research these things, I'm not a Trekkie though, really. Um, Apparently, his kind of opening spiel in Star Trek went through a number of revisions, before settling on the, the version that is so well-known and so well-loved. We don't have time to, to look at those, but uh, a, a number of them were really very protracted and very tedious. But the stirring rhetoric that they settled on was a triumph of patience and creative genius. You'll be familiar with it, won't you? Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. I mean, how can that not make the hair stand up on the back of your neck? Seriously, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Sorry, no one has gone before. Now, It it was okay to just say men back then. It's not anymore. So it's no one has gone before. Now, split infinitive notwithstanding, to go boldly really just doesn't do the trick, does it? So, um, But that notwithstanding, it really did stir my... And and so I would watch a program of Star Trek. I, I would hear this great rhetoric, and I'd be outside in my spaceship. At the, at the drop of a hat, before, before my mum could say, tomato ketchup on your chips, I would be rushing out of the door into my spaceship, exploring new territories. I'd be taking Spock with me, who happened to be my, my, my Yorkshire Terrier dog, uh, and, and, and we'd be going boldly. We'd be encountering aliens, and there was this, this boldness. I'd be looking up at the stars. I'd be, we lived out in the countryside. It was easy to do. I'd be looking over vast expanses of, of fields, and I'd be looking to the frontier. That idea of boldly going in in exploration, breaking out new ground and and pushing out the boundaries, they connected with me at at a deep level. But actually, Kirk got it wrong. Space is not the final frontier. Not as far as gospel ministry is concerned. In fact, in terms of gospel ministry, there are no final frontiers. There are only multiple frontiers. And we as evangelicals need to be men and women who are frontier focused. That's what the gospel calls us to be, frontier focused. 
Now, what is a frontier? A frontier is the extreme limit of settled land beyond which lies wilderness. The extreme limit of settled land beyond which lies wilderness. Some years ago, I had the privilege of visiting Cape Town in South Africa. Now, most of my time, whilst I was there, I was there for about uh, nine days, was spent in respectable areas, talking to respectable people, respectable conferences, about respectable gospel ministry, uh, with respectable churches that were largely white. But the highlight of my trip was actually a trip into one of the townships. Apparently, so I was told, about one million people live in these townships, in these uh, shanty towns, in this part of Cape Town. As I was driven from the airport, we drove past sheds and shacks for mile after mile after mile in an area that was known as the Cape Flats. Um, I went to visit uh, a young pastor there and see his work. And we arrived early, and uh, it was quite warm, so rather than sit in the car, we, we got out and we sat on a wall of a small, rough church building. After about 10 minutes, as we were sitting there, my friend, who was a, a native of Cape Town, um, who'd driven me there, told me that most white Christians from the city wouldn't venture into this part of the Cape Flats. It was just too dangerous. Now, as we sat there with no sense of threat at all, as it happened, but we just watched groups of youths and grown men walking aimlessly around. And I never once felt any sense of menace, but just rather a sense of compassion. They were like sheep without a shepherd. They were deprived. They were despised. They were marginalized. But as far as my friend knew, there was, relatively speaking, very little going on in terms of gospel witness in reaching these people in the Cape Flats. But by any definition of that term, that road that ran from the airport was a formidable frontier. And what lay beyond it was, for the most part, a gospel witness. Interestingly, there were a couple of large church buildings, but... They were prosperity churches who were peddling upon the, upon the sense of exclusion and marginalization of the inhabitants of this part of the world. It was tragic to see. There was prosperity preachers there, but there were not gospel preachers there. And as I reflected on these people, I couldn't help but think that talk of church planting in Cape Town that didn't include the Cape Flats and, and didn't include some costly initiative, serious initiative to reach them, was at best inappropriate and at worst a cruel delusion. But I didn't need to travel 8,000 miles to see a gospel frontier. There are many areas in uh, my city and in my country that are equally bereft of clear gospel witness. Parts of, of, of my country that need reaching. New frontiers, old frontiers that we need, to, we need to cross to reach people for Christ. But let's get back to Romans 15. Now Paul is showing us 
that how biblical hope is intimately tied up with the spread of the gospel, which is the perfect platform for his next move. Why did Paul write the letter to the Romans? Gary talked to us about this uh, last night, um, and, and, and I think he's right. It's surprising for an Irishman that he was, but he was. Um, Leon Morris, um, in his commentary on uh, Romans, says there are at least 12 theories as to why uh, Paul wrote Romans. Now, without wanting to be dogmatic, because you know that I'm just not that kind of guy, um, I want to suggest that the principal reason is found here. And Paul has left it to the end, although he has alluded to it at the beginning, and again, Gary very helpfully showed us that last night, to see that what is really on his mind and on his heart, what he really wants to bring to these group, uh, this group of Christ followers scattered throughout the city of Rome. And it's about the spread of the gospel. That's what the book of Romans is about. It's about the spread of the gospel. It's not Paul writing his, his doctoral thesis. It's not Paul parading his theological insight. It's not Paul trying to impress the believers in Rome or, or, or to let them know that he's some, somehow kosher. That's not why he's doing it. It's about the spread of the gospel. And so he carefully and, and, and eloquently expounds the gospel in this letter in order to show what the gospel is about is about spreading to the world particularly in this case, to Spain, which was, as it were, the, 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 the far reaches of the planet, as far as he knew. So verse 14 is an, an encouragement. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But, <laughs> that's a big but, isn't it? Paul likes big buts. He does, there's lots of them in his letters. I cannot lie, he likes them. <laughs> and <laughs> that wasn't in my notes, by the way, which is probably good enough reason not to have said it. Um, <laughs> but it, it, it is an encouragement. He says, yeah, I'm, I'm satisfied about you, but it, it's like my school reports. It's, it's like, yeah, T Timis has done quite well, but it's like when you preach a sermon. Thanks for, the, thanks for the sermon, Steve, but. And don't you hate that but when it happens? It's like Andrew Hurd sitting next to me this morning saying what he appreciated about my talk, and you knew there was a big but that was lurking there. And... And he didn't say it, but it, it, it was eloquently and it was loudly spoken in his heart. And it was a very significant but. I just hated him at that point. <laughs> but there's that kind of gentle rebuke here. And the word translated but is technically, Gary was doing some technical stuff last night. I can do it as well. It's an adversative participle. That's what the word but is in the Greek text. You're doing well, brothers and sisters, he says, but... You could do better. But on some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder. You seem to be forgetting, he says. You seem to be not really quite clear upon what it's all about. 
And what is it all about? Well, it's about the gospel going out. That's what it's about. It's about the gospel breaching new frontiers. It's about the gospel always going outward until it reaches the far corners of the earth. That's what it's about. So how could they be doing better? Well, by getting involved in Paul's gospel ministry. Look at verses 16 to 21. But on some points I've written to you very boldly by your way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way round to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has been named, but uh, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. You see, that's that's the point that Paul has to get to when he expounds the gospel as effectively and as fluently and as expansively as he's expounded it from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through to chapter at the end of chapter 11. If that gospel is as big as Paul says it is, then this is the end result. That, that, that others might see so that those who have never been told will see and those who have never heard will understand. And his proposed visit to them that he goes on to talk about in verse 22 is going to give them an ideal opportunity to do that. Look at what he says in verse 24. I hope to see you in passing as I go on to Spain to be helped on my journey there by you. Now that might appear vague to be helped on my journey, but the word helped on can be used as, as a technical term for, for missionary support. So I want you to to be the means of me going to Spain. I want you to get on board with me as I go to Spain. I want you to resource me so I can go to Spain. Why is he going to Spain? So he doesn't have to build on anybody else's foundation. So he can tell people who have not seen so that they might hear. So that he can speak to people who have not heard so that they might understand. That's why. So that they might be confronted with Christ. That they might hear this this gospel that they might be saved. They're going to help him on his way by joining him some. By the, the, them sending people to accompany him with a new apostolic team as he, as, as he breaks new territory. See, it's all about the gospel, and it's all about the gospel getting out. Because you can't talk about the gospel unless you see that it's a gospel for those who have not yet bowed the knee to Christ as Savior. And look at verse 19 again. Where Paul says, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. I find that an interesting phrase, don't you? What does he mean? I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel. It could mean that he's just saying, look, I've, I've covered the entire area. From Jerusalem to Illyricum, I've, I've covered it. I've got it covered. It's dealt with being there, done that, bought the t-shirt on my way elsewhere. 
But even for Paul, that would be claiming too much. He clearly hadn't covered the entire area. He'd done a lot. He'd planted a lot of churches that were meant to be uh, covering the area as well, but he quite clearly hadn't quite covered the area. It could also mean, I've taken the gospel to the major urban centers, and now the churches are taking it out. But that word fulfilled is a curious one, isn't it? From Jerusalem all the way, all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel. In taking the gospel from Jerusalem all the way to the east coast of the Adriatic Sea, Paul has fulfilled the gospel in what sense? Well, in the sense that that is precisely what the gospel is for. As the apostle to the Gentiles, he's saying, I've crossed new frontiers. I've broken new ground. I've stormed new citadels. I've conquered new lands for the gospel. He's gone with the gospel and he's fulfilled the gospel because that's why the gospel was given, so that it might go out to the far corners of the earth. And now he's going to Spain. And given the nature of the gospel... That journey is inevitable. That journey for Paul is absolutely necessary. And he wants the believers in Rome to get on board with this this unstoppable gospel train. And how do we know it's unstoppable? Because of Habakkuk chapter 2. Where in the midst of a letter, a prophecy of judgment, both on Israel and and, and, and on a godless nation, The prophet says, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Whatever's going to happen to Judah, whatever is going to happen to Babylon, whatever is going to happen to the world, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That is a promise of God that that will happen. And that's why Paul has to go from Jerusalem to Illyricum to Spain and wherever beside. And that's why Paul wants the God of hope to fill them with all joy and believing. Joy and peace in believing, as he says in chapter 14 and verse 13. Believing in what? Believing that God is going to fill his promises to bless all the nations, as he said to Abraham in in Genesis chapter 12. And by superabounding in supernatural hope, the Roman churches will respond to the gospel that requires movement. That's what he wants from them. That's what the gospel is going to do. That's why he wants them to pray that prayer. That's why he's praying that prayer for them. And then look back. Look back to verses uh, in, in, in chapter 14, verses 7 and 8. Therefore, he says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. You see, God's gracious welcome that he articulates and demonstrates in the gospel that the the Roman Christians are beneficiaries of, that we're beneficiaries of, is operative when we then go out to welcome others in. The gospel calls the Christians in Rome, as it calls all of us, to be global Christians with a heart for all of those who are still strangers to grace. And that can be people thousands of miles away, and it can be people 
in the next suburb of our city. Because it's not just an apostolic thing, is it? He wants them, these ordinary Christians in the city of Rome, to share his passion for the lost, to share his passion to see Christ known, to see God keep his promises. That's, what he, that's why he prays for their hope. That's why he prays for, for, for their joy, for their peace in believing, and by the power of the Spirit to see that hope fulfilled. You see, if we understand hope, as a confidence in God's ability and will to keep his great and eternal promises that come to, to us in Christ, then we'll be the means through which he'll fill them. And you know what that'll mean? That'll mean going. That'll mean going in order to ensure that the gospel continues to go out. That we'll be men and women who are frontier-focused. That we'll be sitting there asking questions in our churches, in our business meetings, in our leaders' meetings, our elders' meetings, our executive meetings, whatever it is. And we'll be saying, okay, where is the gospel not getting next? We'll be identifying GPAs, gospel priority areas. And we'll be saying, okay, let's think about this. We'll be getting maps on our walls and we'll be looking at our cities. We'll be looking at our states. We'll be looking at our country. We'll be looking at our world. And we'll be saying, okay, this is a gospel priority area. This is an area where the gospel hasn't penetrated. This is an area where there's a particular people group or subgroup that has not been impacted by the gospel. Let's pray about that. Let's start talking about that. Let's start presenting that to people and say, is God putting this upon your heart? Are you going to be the person that we can send out? Are you going to be the group that we can send out to reach those people? That's what we're going to do. If we pray these kind of prayers, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Because we're going to have a hope that believes in the promises and, and, and ability of God to keep the promises that he made to, to Abraham, which is to bless all the nations of the earth so that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth like the waters cover the sea. Is that what we're doing? Because I don't think we should be content with gospel ministry that is just where we are. I think... In fact, I don't think we should ever be content as believers. Of course, in the Philippians 4 sense of the word, there's a, a real contentment because we know that God is at work, etc. But there should be a holy discontent when we know that there are parts of our city, of our town, of our area, of our world where Christ is not named. There should be this discontent. We should be men and women who not only see things that are and ask why, we see things that are not and ask why not. Well, why aren't people reaching them? Why have they not heard the gospel? Why are people not prepared to give up the, the, the comfort zone and step out into the unknown in order to reach people with the gospel? Why? But the problem is, is that when we start asking those kind of questions, it's funny how what God does with them, doesn't he? Because he finds our own hearts getting agitated by them. And then the question being asked, is it me? Am I supposed to do it? Am I the one who's meant to go? Church planting is kind of a popular thing. This is a church planting conference with a, of a church planting network. I'm, I'm the uh, executive director of a global church planting with lots of churches because I'm a big deal. 
And, but the thing about a lot of the churches that we plant, there's just something, I don't want to dismiss them at all. I really, really don't want to do that. And I don't want to demean them at all. But there's something just a little bit too predictable about them. For some, there's something that is just a little bit too, I don't know, trendy about them. The, 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 the commitment to city center church planting. Now, without trying to discourage any of those of you who are doing it, you have to admit there is something intrinsically attractive about it. In fact, I think it is the new sexy. I think it is the cutting-edge urban gospel chic. Yeah, we're planning in the, uh, in, 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 in the city center. Yeah, we're doing cutting-edge gospel ministry in the coffee shops. You just don't know how taxing it is to share the gospel over a flat white. Seriously. And when you have to have two of them, boy, please pray for me. Can you support me in that kind of ministry? Now, of course, I'm, I'm not trying to undermine it, but I am trying to say, if that is the, is that the, the extent of where we plant churches, if, the, if that's the predominance of where we go, where we look, that kind of ministry... Where, where, where we can hang out with people who are like us and we can go to places that are comfortable and where we'd go whether we were going there with the gospel or not, then there has to be question marks that are placed over that. And it's not that we shouldn't go there. Of course we should. But it is that we should not just go there. We should go to those places where most people don't want to go, where it is going to be hard. We should go to reach those 50-something affluent people who'd never enter and darken the door of a traditional church like we've heard about tonight with Alan Cathy. We should be thinking about where we can reach the in, in indigenous Australians in the, in, in the way that Matt was describing. And where else can that happen? Because obviously I'm not an Australian, but I know that that's an issue here. We should be looking at, at, at estates or, or, or estates or, or project housing or, or government centers or whatever to reach people there because not a lot of people are doing that. We should be looking to go into rural areas that really are very unsexy and very unattractive, but where you have groups of people, hundreds, maybe just a few thousand, but have no exposure, meaningful exposure to the gospel. Those are the places that we should be looking at, marking on our maps, praying about, putting before people and asking the question, are we going to go? Who's going to go? When are we going to go? What's it going to take for us to go? Are we going to go? Who's going to go? When are we going to go? What's it going to take for us to go? Now, of course, that is going to mean that we will cross cultural boundaries of course, it's going to mean that we're going to have to move out of our comfort zones. Of course, it's going to be costly. Of course, it's going to be hard. Of course, it's going to be uncomfortable. Of course, it's going to be awkward. Of course, it is. Which is why that prayer in Romans 14, 15, verse 13 is so apposite. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Let's pray that prayer for ourselves. Let's pray that prayer for one another. Let's be gripped by grace and consumed by a passion for Christ and his fame. Let's sue God so that he keeps his promises. Because he wants to. 
Because he will do. Because the knowledge of his glory will fill the earth like the waters cover the sea. Of that you can be certain. Because he's promised that he will. And how will he do that? He'll do that through people like us planting churches where there are no churches. He will do that through people like us littering the world with communities of light so that the darkness is dispelled and the knowledge of the glory of the Lord fills the earth as the waters cover the sea. Now believe the gospel and let the Holy Spirit control you and then, and then go to explore strange new worlds and seek out new life and new cultures. Boldly go when no one has gone before. Well, at least boldly go where most people aren't even thinking of going. Don't build on foundations that others have laid. Don't take the easy options. Don't try and reach the kind of people that everyone else is trying to reach. Not because they shouldn't be reached, but because everybody else is trying to reach them. That's the imperative of the gospel, isn't it? The inevitable consequence and outcome of abounding hope. As a, as a teenager, I was greatly uh, challenged and moved by reading stories of the 19th century missionary movement. And I was particularly troubled by hearing stories of missionaries that would go out to parts of Africa um, and they would take their coffins with them. And they would take their coffins with them because they knew that they wouldn't be coming back and they would say goodbye to their families. They would say goodbye to their friends. They would say goodbye to the comforts. And they would go. And in that in first phase, some of them would go out and live just a week or two weeks at the most. Because they'd be killed by disease. It was a rough experience. But they went knowing that. And then the next wave would go knowing that that had happened. And it's as though these, these, these bodies were strewn over the continent of Africa so that others could walk on them to take the gospel further into it. And they'd lay down their lives so that others could walk over them to take the gospel into, further into the continent. It's a disturbing and a stirring, simultaneously stirring image, isn't it? Those were men and women who boldly went where no one had gone before them. And they paid the price. They laid down their life so that Christ could be made famous. That's a, that's a glorious thing. But one of the problems of that movement, particularly in terms of my own country, is that in the 19th century, all these Christians and all of these resources went to the unreached parts of the world. Praise God it did. But then the cities that were largely speaking, rife with, uh, with, with vice and sin and deprivation and disease and brokenness and wretchedness, the cities of, our, of my country were left. People evacuated them, as it were, in order to go to other parts of the world. And it's never a case of either or, is it? But it is a case of both and. So God may not be calling you to plant a church somewhere else in the world, though he may. But God may be calling you to plant a church here in Australia where nobody else is planting them. In fact, I don't think there's a maybe about it. I really do think that he is. 
And if Geneva push is going to be a movement, as Mikey hoped that it will be, well, then it will be a movement because that kind of church planting is going on. If Acts 29, of which I'm part, is going to be a movement, if people are going to look back in 50 years' time and see Geneva push and see Acts 29 and talk about them in those terms, it will be because and only because we broke a new territory for Christ. We planted churches where others have not planted churches. Because we've seen churches planted where people have laid down their lives so that others could walk on them, so that the gospel could get further into that culture. That's what it means to be a movement. A movement inspired by, fueled by, the God of hope, filling us with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Spirit, we abound in hope, so that we boldly go to the glory of Christ. Amen. Let me pray. Father, Lord, please don't let um, the inadequacy of the messenger um, in any way conceal or, or, or blunt uh, the the glory of your message. Father, rather, let your Holy Spirit do his work in all of our hearts, speaker, hearer alike, and uh, renew our, our vision and, uh, and, and stir our faith. And Lord, please inspire us to action. Help us to so love the gospel, be gripped by the gospel, to be so liberated by the gospel, Lord, that this just seems to be a very natural, inevitable, necessary thing to do. Uh, Lord, do a good work in us. Please don't let these simply be words. Let them be words with power so that lives are changed, so that churches are planted, so that people are lost, so that Christ is glorified, and so that you hasten the day when he returns. And we say, Father, please, Maranatha, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.